the quantum mechanics. Yes, we're the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for believers, doubters and everyone in between. And um, there's been a lot of UFO stuff recently. I know we've done quite a lot of UFO stuff recently. Like, weirdly, we were doing historical stuff last week. But yeah. I've noticed there's been quite a few more UFO coverage, UFO stories, even NASA... I was reading that have uh, will be launching its own independent investigation into unidentified aerial phenomena (UAPs) and whether they are a threat to uh, spacecrafts, which is interesting. Uh, there was a statement from someone called Thomas Thomas Zurbuchen. It's easy for you to say. Yeah, I know. We've got to start off with a difficult name. Uh, he's the Associate Administrator for Science at NASA. He says, NASA believes that the tools of scientific discovery are powerful enough to apply here, i.e. to UAPs. We have access to a broad range of observations of Earth from space, and that is the lifeblood of scientific inquiry. We have the tools and team who can help us improve our understanding of the unknown. Sounds like a quote on our from from our podcast. It's disclosure, isn't it? It's disclosure. Well, it, it, it's it's kind of feels like it's yeah, it's moving at a snail's pace at times in that direction. I mean, they he does go on NASA of stress. They have no evidence of UAPs or extraterrestrial in origin, but they are going to start looking at them, which I think is a big change for them. Apparently, they're only going to invest about $100,000, which in terms of NASA <laughs> budgets is like peanuts. But, but but in a way, maybe the important thing is there seems to be this kind of acknowledgement and more, you know, scientists and people coming out and being able maybe to express views about UAPs and potential of alien visitations in a way that they've not really felt credible enough to do in the past. Now, I didn't know it was $100,000, but doesn't $100,000 to you mean, yeah, we totally know what's going on and we're just going <laughs> to, you know, re- redo some stuff. $100,000, to put that in context, my I know this from my sister who's got an old house and who's trying to do some work on it. She needs a bat survey, right, to check if there are any bats living there. Right. That costs right. £500 a night. So wow. if it costs £500 a night to do a bat survey, you've got to ask, <laughs> what, $100,000, which isn't even it's pounds, it's f- about £75,000, you know, what's that going to do for UFOs? What that will do is, I think, <laughs> enable somebody to rewrite some of the paperwork so it doesn't seem that, like they're lying. But anyway. Yeah, 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 no, I think you could be right. But yeah, I think what's more important is it's more this, well, just using the word that the phenomena exists, even though they're saying it's not extraterrestrial, they've no proof it's extraterrestrial, but just saying it exists and we're looking at it, that's quite a seismic shift, I think, at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. I mean, it does feel like within our lifetime, somebody is going to say, okay, guys, this is of extraterrestrial origin. Yeah. It really does. Yep. Well, let's hope that happens soon, sooner rather than later. Yeah, I hope so, because I'm kind of impatient. Yeah, it 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 would be a shame to step off this earthly plane without knowing especially if there is knowledge out there we're not aware of so yes come on nasa pull your finger out (laughs) yes hurry up because we need it for podcast content 
Come, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is the mission of NASA, isn't it? It's it, keep me and you talking. <laughs> yeah, well, if they're only spending a hundred thousand, then yeah, yeah. I mean, put that in context. That's about one pound for every listener we have a year. So yeah, it's not very yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we're coming right back down to earth today. Uh, although I am going to mention UFOs weirdly, but not in the way that you think I am. We no. are going to talk about poltergeists. Right. And in a different way. So I think we all we all know what poltergeists are, right? They are, um, it's the German for noisy ghost. And these are the entities that come into people's houses, throw things around cause general mayhem and are usually associated with teenage girls but that is not the angle i'm coming at this week i've been looking at the work of darren ritson who is a paranormal investigator and his book poltergeist parallels and contagion and it has some really really fascinating stories and unusual conclusions and I really wanted to cover this because I have felt for a long time, you know, when people talk about like going on, like maybe going on a ghost hunt, for example, or doing a Ouija board and they talk about something following you home. That's a pretty common trope, mm. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and, definitely. And this attachment that people talk about, you know, why would a spirit be attached to you? And there's all kinds of explanations given but they're not so bizarre that um that it's completely ignored when i was just sort of reading around this topic i had no idea there's a chap called dr alan sanderson who was writing for the royal society of psychiatrists so this is not a it's not a fly by night organization their website has a .ac.uk and I found a transcript of one of the presentations he gave. And at the very top of it, he says, spirit possession, according to contemporary science, is impossible and an outworn concept of interest only to historians and anthropologists. Yet, here in the 21st century, two psychiatrists are this evening, as I said, it's a transcript, suggesting that spirit attachment, as it is now called, may actually be a common and an eminently treatable phenomena. So what is going on? So that sort of gets very neatly into this book, which focuses, as I say, exclusively on the entity that we know as the poltergeist. And it is the journey that two UK investigators made. And it resulted in this book after their background first book uh, about the South Shields poltergeist was published. And I think one of the reasons being is that poltergeist books are kind of back in the public domain. The BBC mm. adapted the Battersea poltergeist. Yeah. And off the back of that, and obviously the ongoing sort of noise about the Enfield poltergeist, I think it's sort of come back into relevance more recently. In fact, you know, Battersea Poltergeist, it was such a huge hit for the BBC. I would imagine that it's done quite a lot for those book sales. Yeah, and it, well, I, well, I think what seems to be happening to me is almost a, a move away from the the most haunted approach to ghosts. You know what I mean? The, the kind of live feeds and uh, infrared cameras and people jumping about. There seems to be more of a 
investigation, proper investigation and study of the phenomena, whether it's past phenomena or what's going on now. So it does feel like there's a bit more scientific rigour, let's say, going into the investigation, which I think is great. I think so. And also with people like this, there is, um, I guess, a bit more of of an attempt to understand what's going on rather than just a reportage on Mm. the phenomena that is being investigated. Although that is obviously a big part of it just before we sort of jump into it um a brave decision was taken by the author to talk about himself in the third person so when i do direct quotes that is why uh it sometimes refers to darren in the third person for that is his name and it does make things a little confusing um when we're talking about tenses and stuff but i'll try and keep you up to speed i've I've read this book now more times than I would care to read a book in a week, but I now have uh, an understanding of really what he's trying to do. I must say, Ben, Peter will try and keep up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ben will try and take you along on the journey. (laughs) Peter says thank you. (laughs) So I think, like, let's just understand who these two investigators are. And I think this little quote from... The book sort of tells you where they're coming from. And he starts by saying, In 2006, Darren Ritson and Michael Hallowell made a life-changing decision to investigate an alleged case of poltergeist infestation in an otherwise normal family home in the town of South Shields in Tyne and Weir. And I think a lot of poltergeist and paranormal cases start with that caveat to be honest and they wrote a book about it it was called the south shields poltergeist one family's fight against an invisible intruder and a lot of the work that they put into that book finds its way into the thinking and some of the very specifics of cases that come along in this book he goes on to say In the book, The South Shields Poltergeist, Darren and Michael described in graphic detail how a young family was almost hounded out of its home by an invisible, brooding entity that seemed hell-bent on snatching from them every ounce of happiness they possessed. The researchers found themselves in the daunting position of trying to help the family to deal with this nightmare scenario. So again, that sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? That Mm. That is almost what you would expect. That, that sounds very similar to the Enfield poltergeist, doesn't it? Where yes. Morris and Playfair, had almost, they almost got dragged into it rather than being independent observers, didn't they? That's right. But this, this idea of um, an entity sapping the happiness of a family, that will come up later when we try to talk about what this thing might be and Darren's kind of conclusions. So that's why I wanted to sort of mention mm. how he'd brought that in. And I'm not going to go deeply into that South Shields case because it's it's very long. It's very like the, the Enfield um, haunting. But I am going to bring out some um, examples of very specific behaviour which build on the theory that Darren eventually presents in this book. And it's worth noting that this book is full of all of the cases that they have investigated. So it isn't just South Shields. There are lots of other locations that they've investigated. So if I mention another location, just know that that is because it is one of the various cases that they are investigating. And it really doesn't matter 
whereabouts it is or who necessarily was involved in it. It just matters that they are discrete cases in their own rights. But before we get into it, um, into the examples, I think it's worth just talking about what contagion means because this whole book is about the possibility of a contagious notion. And the author makes this point that when we talk about contagion, and in fact, on the cover of his book, he has the symbol for um, contagion, you know, that sort of yellow and black symbol. And coming out of COVID, we we think about that quite a lot. We think about the transfer of viruses or diseases, but it isn't just that. The contagion is also ideas, politics, jokes, laughter. We talk about them all as being contagious. Mm. So if somebody has an idea, that idea can travel. And we don't often use that word contagion, but that's what it is, right? That's mm. that's how it goes. We do talk about jokes being contagious. Mm. We sort of talk about, you know, if you're in the audience of um, a comedy show and one person laughs, there's almost an enablement for another person to laugh. And so the the the, the comedy becomes contagious, or we might yeah. say infectious. Yeah. And that is kind of where this author is coming from and he presents that view right at the beginning because um to get the idea of it doesn't just have to be a disease it can be something else Mm. yeah that's interesting and so the first example that he gives is uh it takes place in august 2006 And he and Michael are investigating another case that they call Lock Street. So this is sort of um, similar but different to the South South Shields one. And there's a lot of telephone interference and um, malarkey, I think you would say, with this one. And that's important because telephones play quite a large part in this story. Um, but he relates that Michael received a call from a friend. The call was made to his mobile phone just before 2am, but by the time he retrieved his phone to answer it, it stopped ringing. He rang his friend back, who was mystified when the man dis- uh, denied making any call to him whatsoever. He said the phone had been sitting on his dashboard for hours. And this is the very first time when you get a little inkling of a little bit of weirdness coming through. So this is, it's really mild and it's not much, but, oh, okay, a weird missed call from somebody. And this is how the story starts. And then it gets really, really more into it. And and it's these, it's understanding these very small minutiae, the devil in the detail, that you can see the similarities between the cases. So, again, this might not seem weird, but this really stood out to me. One day when the two researchers are at a more public investigation, they are speaking and there's a whole load of members of the public there. Someone comes up to Michael and tells him about his own poltergeist experience. And he says to him, yeah, it was awful. It even pinched food from our refrigerator. (laughs) And Michael says... It wasn't a pie by any chance, was it? I think <laughs> it was. <laughs> I 
I think it was now you come to mention it. Why do you ask? Because, he says, the poltergeist in South Shields pinched a pie from the fridge there too. Ah. What a coincidence. Wow. And this is when Michael and Darren, on the basis of a pie, although that sounds... <laughs> no, that sounds great. That's really it sounds ridiculous. They start thinking, well, isn't that a weird coincidence that a poltergeist in two, like one completely unknown case and one that is being covered by these two guys extensively, one of the common phenomena is that a pie is stolen. Wow. I, I think that is a pucker route of investigation. Good God. <laughs> Sorry. I'll tell you what it was reminding me, though. Is, it's funny, isn't it, that thing? We'll come onto the pie, but when you were talking about the phones and the equipment and stuff, I, it was just going through my mind that when we've had weird things happen with equipment, and I'd have to double-check, pretty sure we've always been doing more kind of poltergeist ghost-type content where we've had these things go wrong whereas when we've been doing kind of ufos and other stuff we hardly have any equipment failure we had equipment failure when we were in the pub looking for the ghost in the pub mr tiffles when i we last spoke about poltergeist i remember i was editing and we were talking about poltergeist and that tv turned on it's really interesting i just thinking back that where we've had issues with tech and we have had quite a few it's always been related to poltergeists or at least ghosts, which is odd. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm about to tell you, well, the story after next involves a tech thing. And tech does play a large part in this poltergeist phenomena, as do baths. But we'll come on to that. Okay. So later on, um, the again, this is one where Darren is writing in the third person. But um, he has just come back from investigating a case and you've got to imagine just so that everybody understands that this is a man who does paranormal investigations but has a normal and uh you know mundane is probably i think i'm putting words into his mouth here but he lives with his partner he's got a daughter he goes back to his house not expecting anything to happen um and and also i'm going to read you this direct quote the author is is um, he goes into more detail than you might imagine, but um, to to give you <laughs> to give you the honest account, I'm just going to keep it all in. But um, he describes returning from doing an investigation and uh, into a poltergeist, and he says Darren unpacked his ghost hunting equipment and put it away in his office, making sure to leave out his video camera and dictation machine. That'll become important later. It was rather late when he arrived home that evening, much later than he had anticipated, and Jane, his partner, had already gone to bed as she had an early start at work the following morning. Quietly, Darren crept around the house trying not to waken her or their daughter, Abby. Finally, he decided to make himself a bite to eat before going to bed. A sandwich. As Darren buttered two slices of bread, it's chicken, by the way, just in case you wanted to know, that's included. Okay. He was disappointed to hear footsteps coming down the stairwell. Damn, he thought, I must have woken Jane after all. Then he becomes aware that he knows that there is somebody standing in the kitchen behind him, having come downstairs, and he thinks it's Jane there to inquire about how the evening's investigations had gone. He turns to greet her to find nobody there. 
he's alone in the kitchen. Darren walks into the hall, stands at the bottom of the stairwell, and upwards into the shadows, he calls out, Hello. No answer. Hello? Are you there? No answer. He goes up the stairs, and he has this overwhelming feeling that his partner was still fast asleep in bed. And, as you guess, yeah, she is. And so this is another example of something repeating the activity that it's doing at the investigation location. Right. So so the stairs play a big part in where he's investigating this case. And then suddenly he gets home, he feels a presence in the kitchen, he hears footsteps coming down the stairs, and yet there's nothing there. This is aping something that he has been looking at that day and has been speaking to witnesses about. Unless Jane was after a chicken sandwich and was just hiding it from him. <laughs> That's but true. But not in two locations. That is odd, isn't it? Because that, that, I mean, in a way, it's funny because it's making me think that is proper trickster stuff, isn't it? Play with you oh, in yeah. the same way that you just come from the investigation, not just any different type of weird paranormal activity. I'll do exactly the same thing that I did oh, yeah. when you were observing me somewhere else, just to mess with your mind. Oh, well, the trickster stuff gets crazy a bit later on, and and you start feeling like this thing, w- whatever it is, has more of a sense of humour. But it's interesting because the following day after this incident, he he's, he's left out his tape recorder and he wants to transcribe the interview that he made with the witnesses... And this is like 2006, so it's a it's a tape machine. And he presses play on the tape machine, and all he can hear is like that sort of gentle hiss. You know that when there's nothing on the side of it. And he describes that he sat there waiting and waiting, but there's no interview, just this sort of blank tape. And he becomes really annoyed with himself. Like, did I? what did I do wrong? Did I not turn this on? Because, you know, it's almost a whole evening wasted if I didn't get anything from the interviewees. And he becomes annoyed with himself. And then he ejects the tape and realises it's on the wrong side. And he also remembers that the previous night he played back a bit of the recording to himself to check it was there. And yet the tape is in the machine on side B turns it over back to side a rewinds it the whole interview is there wow and he knows that he didn't take that tape has not left that machine since he left the building of the investigation that that's amazing though because it's like i mean if you do if you follow that conclusion just being if he'd have been able to observe it that means unless you know you kind of I guess there are other explanations, but in its simplest form, if you'd have been watching that tape player, it would have ejected the tape, it would have floated out, yes. turned itself upside down, yes. put itself back in, and then closed itself up again. Oh, yes, absolutely. Wow. I can't imagine yeah. seeing that. That would that, freak you out, wouldn't it? It would. <laughs> and And it did freak him out. And... So this inspires the author to put together a checklist of things that 
are observed almost constantly in all of their investigations. And he later goes on to say, if you in, if you look at other investigations that they weren't part of, these things are also reported. And I'll tell you about a couple of those as well. But some of the things that immediately come to mind to the investigator are things like windows opening and shutting repeatedly, this feeling of uneasiness and disorientation at the top of the stairwell. This The stairwell appears to be um, a focal point of activity in in these poltergeist cases and and also strangely the kitchen this feeling of uh, uneasiness and disorientation at the entrance mm. of the kitchen as well which is reminding me of um what the the stuff we did with misha paris yeah because that was stairs and kitchen i mean i know yes. there was stuff going on elsewhere but i think misha said that she you know the stairs for her and the kitchen were the most active places. So yes, really yes, yes. Well, she described walking up the stairs and seeing the floating head, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, like, more, I think, more um, more scary than those, there's the sound of footsteps running in the loft, there's mm. banging and thumping mm. noises emanating from bedrooms, light switches um, blowing, and very specifically in the hallway, there's um there's a whole load of them um the the ones that stand out to me are uh, hearing one name one's name spoken by an invisible entity that's really common and i think that would that would do do me in yeah that would uh, do me as well wow okay and anom- anomalous <laughs> especially if it's in the third person <laughs> <laughs> is ben there uh uh, anonymous anomalous scratches on people and we'll come on to similarities with alien abduction cases later um this is a really weird one finding a baby's cot on top of the bed so cots move rooms and end up on parents beds and that is, that is commonly reported and then probably the other things are all the things that you might expect, including being touched by invisible hands. And he includes, like, number 25, the removal of the bath panel. Now, he he goes into some depth about this, and I find this one of the most puzzling things about what they're reporting. So if you've got an older-style bathroom where the bath isn't sunken but it's kind of slightly raised up, but I'm not talking about uh, like a freestanding bath. I'm talking about a bath that is built into some kind of tiled exterior. They often have this plastic panel which you can remove to get into the piping underneath in case there's a leak or you need to change the tap or whatever it is. And, you know, I think anyone that grew up in the 70s or 80s are familiar with this. Poltergeists love taking those off and they're not easy to remove. And yet, in many of the cases that they investigate, this panel has been removed and is left just resting against the side of the bath, but is completely removed. And he goes into some detail about how difficult it is to get this panel back in, and it would have been a similar difficulty to get it off. So it's not something that just falls off. It is, it's, a, it, it's part of the infestation, is, is the way that he would describe it. So basically he's saying that a lot of poltergeists are interior decorators who go 
get rid of that avocado bath suite. Take the front <laughs> off. Just show it. Do that up. It'll look more traditional. That, wow. Weirdly, I had avocado bath suites going through my mind as well. Yeah. But isn't, isn't that a peculiar thing for any sort of entity to do to remove that yeah. panel from the bath well it's like you said why and i think the thing that and the cot example you talked about you know like we said seeing a tape move and, and kind of turn itself over would be weird enough these are kind of big items heavy as well you yes know what I mean? yes yes uh, very heavy but it's that decision to, for example, remove the bath panel but not do something else in the bathroom. Like, obviously, we know, like, taps turning on and off. That's that's all good. But why not, you know, for example, remove um, the shower head or put the soap somewhere weird? And I'm not saying those things don't happen. But the fact that there, this is a constant piece of activity lends weight to where Darren is going with this this book. Right. To further sort of um, talk about how this thing might be contagious, he gives another example, which I thought was really, really interesting. And at the time, uh, Darren and Michael are investigating uh, at uh, this location called Lock House. And the key witness to that, the resident of the house, is called Mark. And Mark relates the following to them. Mark had told Darren and Michael of an incident that occurred at a relative's house when the investigation at Lock Street was at its height. The woman of the house had been dusting and vacuuming the living room in her home. When she'd finished, she took the vacuum cleaner into the kitchen and stood it against the wall, intending to put it away later. Then she returned to the living room and continued with her housework. Sometime later, when she walked back into the kitchen, she was astonished to find that the contents of the vacuum cleaner's bag had been disgorged onto the floor. Baffled, she took a brush and realised that a pile of dust had been distributed. It had been scattered across the floor, but not in a random manner. As she stared at the mess, she could see that the dust and muck had been carefully arranged into a pattern. In fact, it had been arranged in such a way that it actually spelt the word mark on another occasion again at the house of one of mark's relatives one of the residents had on display an attractive arrangement of ornamental candles several small candles each ensconced in its own decorative holder floating in a larger dish containing water when lit they created an atmosphere of serenity and coziness until the poltergeist got to work that is when the young woman's attention was distracted the poltergeist picked up several of the candles floating in the water and poured the molten wax onto the surface of the water itself, where it immediately solidified. When she noticed what had happened, she was naturally bemused, but her confusion turned to alarm when she saw that the wax on the surface of the water spelt out a word, Mark. <laughs> so that's two instances of two different people connected by blood or marriage to the key witness in the home where the poltergeist is displaying its key activity yeah, doing this spread wow right it's it's making these very sinister moves with these people 
in a way that you wouldn't expect. You would not expect the contents of a vacuum cleaner to be in any way terrifying. Well, unless you vacuumed out the back of my girlfriend's car, in which case, <laughs> you know, it yeah. can be terrifying. But yeah. it, this is this is really... It, there is an intelligence at work here that knows what it is doing to these people, right? It, it is not yeah. expecting that these people are going, oh, bless, Mark, look, it's spelt out Mark. Isn't that lovely? But, That's and, terrifying. And also, yeah, it's terrifying, but also it's the... I mean, I get the one... So if you went from it from a really sceptical point of view, you go, oh, it's one of one of the family paying a bit of a trick. And you could see that potentially with a vacuum cleaner contents because it's easy to shape into the word but that the example that you talked about with the floating candles and the wax that's a pretty difficult trick to achieve <laughs> do you yeah, know what I, I don't, mean to, I don't to make think it you spell could, you, i don't think you could do it could you it, no i don't think so no you, it would take some it would take some work and some trial and error add some practice i would think add some practice yeah yeah absolutely yeah wow, wow. But it gets this is this is the thing about poltergeists. They seem to have a way of creating fear and tension by doing things which are not overtly malevolent but are just sinister. It's the equivalent of, you know, somebody phoning you and saying, I can see you, I'm watching you. Yeah, yeah. I know what you're doing. And when it involves the kids, as it does in this next example, and then there's a very, very creepy connection between this, you, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, and then we go on to ask why it's doing this. So there is a, there's a moment when... So Darren's daughter is called Abby, and she's, she's really young. And he says, when Abby would drift off to sleep, there's this bear that would be at the bottom of her cot, a stuffed teddy bear, right? One evening, Darren went into Abby's room and found to his surprise that the bear was now tucked up under the blankets with his daughter. And his question was, how would it got there? Abby wasn't yet able to walk or crawl. How could she have retrieved the bear from the bottom of her cot, placed it under the blankets beside her? and then tucked herself into the blankets, cocooning herself with them around her. She simply wasn't old enough to accomplish this. Darren asked his partner if she had placed the bear next to Abby under the blankets, but she answered firmly to the negative. And then he starts thinking, and he says, well, there were two occasions when the poltergeist at Lock Street did something similar with the parents who lived there, their toddler Robert, on one occasion, it removed him from his bed and placed him on the floor with a quilt wrapped very tightly around him. <laughs> on another occasion, it placed him in a wardrobe in the next room. Which uh, <laughs> is kind of bizarre. It would, it would also take Robert's toys and place them in his bed. On one occasion, it took a stuffed toy duck and placed it next to him under the blankets, exactly as happened in Darren's home with Abby. Later on, he describes that he was talking to another colleague called Darren, Darren Oley. Names don't really matter, just it's another person. And mentioned the incident with the bear that had occurred all those months ago. 
The second Darren had also played an integral part in the investigation of the South Shields poltergeist and had visited the house at Lock Street on a number of occasions. That's what makes his reaction to what Darren says more intriguing because direct quote from him, he says, It's funny you should say that. My girlfriend and I had a similar experience when we lived in Gosforth. The flat we lived in had a spare room with a wardrobe in it. The wardrobe was on the right, just as you walked in through the door, and on top of it was some stuffed toys, teddies and the like. There was also a stuffed toy donkey that used to sing Happy Birthday, which had been sitting on top of the wardrobe for several months. One day, when my girlfriend walked in the room, it started to sing and dance. It scared her. She had never. This had never happened before and has never happened since. But... All of those things are coincidence enough, but then it gets really, really weird. In the South Shields case, the stuffed toy was a Tigger doll, so Tigger from Winnie the Pooh. At Darren Ole's house, the donkey was Eeyore. Oh, come on. And in Darren's house with Abby, the teddy bear was Pooh Bear. Three stuffed toys, all characters created by A.A. Milne, all from the same canon and all experiencing poltergeist phenomena. How weird is that? That is so weird. If only they could have got Heffalump in as well. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, That is weird. uh, There's so much weird about that that we kind of need to unpick a bit. Firstly, I'm just trying to imagine... A singing and dancing Eeyore doll that sings happy birthday in a rather dour tone. Seems a really odd thing, but that, that's weird enough in itself. But to hear that going off would be weird. That connection is incredibly bizarre. Now, of course, Winnie the Pooh is a very popular um, children's thing, so that could be complete coincidence, but... A, it's all characters from Winnie the Pooh, and B, separate characters, which is really weird. It, it is, and and I would have said the same. I think with um with that hat of like not as we always say, not just taking everything at face value. You go, yeah, but as you say, the Winnie the Pooh characters are ubiquitous in kids' rooms, but when it focuses very specifically on those characters. So you could say that the kids, that was the toy that was in their cot. We don't know what other toys there were there, but it's insinuated there were others. But it is absolutely documented there that the Eeyore is just one of many, many stuffed toys on top of the wardrobe. And that's yeah. the one that comes uh, comes to life. Wow. So it, it's then when the author says, look, when police do an investigation into different killings, they realise that it's a serial killer because of the modus operandi of, mm. of, of how they do the killings. And that's how they identify that it relates to one person. And he says, well, could it be because of these similarities we aren't looking at different entities. And he says, maybe we're looking at one arch poltergeist. That's what he calls it, an arch poltergeist. What a great description. Yeah. The, there's, there's one being 
and it puts its tentacles in different people's houses. One, what? Sorry, just so I'm clear, is it one being in the examples you're giving, or is he saying all poltergeists are one being? All poltergeists, all poltergeists Every, activity. everywhere throughout. Wow, is one? Yes, entity. is 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 one entity? Wow. Because why? In if if you took it as they were individual things, so I know in the Enfield case, you, you know the, you get this old man who apparently died in a chair, mm. and he's speaking gruffly through the girl's voice box and all of that. But what if that's a trick? What if mm. that isn't what it is? Why would it be that there were all these similarities and these similarities go on and on and on? This mm. is a this is a thick, thick tome, and I just don't have time to to include it. But things like stacking behaviour, we've all seen the stacking behaviour, but this is this is recorded again and again. Either mm. it is um, chairs on top of each other, even tables on top of each other. In one case, it was um, actually credit cards that were stacked in a really peculiar way. But then uh, an obsession with plastic Lego bricks. Plastic Lego bricks were thrown at police at the Enfield poltergeist incident, but yeah. they appear heavily in all the cases you've got here. And you could just, again, say, oh, it's the ubiquity of these things in people's houses. But that argument gets weaker when you sort of go into those really bizarre minutiae, like removing the side of a bath. Mm. That is... That is something, yes, it is in all houses, but why Why that again and again and again and again and again? Why? What's fascinating as well is just going through my mind and I'm just, I'm almost going back to try and think of other things. When, we th when you look at other paranormal beings, entities, whatever you want to call them, the difference actually, which does fit this theory with the poltergeist is it has a distinct personality. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I, I, there yes, are kind does, of yeah. traits with other things, but even when we've done fairy folk and stories of that, some of them are kind and nice and help out. Some of them are a bit meaner. Some, you know, so even things that have personalities pinned on them, poltergeists, they're always that same thing, aren't they? They're mischievous. They're play. They're tricksters. They're playing around. Let alone all the specific activity that you're talking about. That was that really struck me. Of like, well, that would make sense if it is just one entity. That is that one entity's personality, and I yeah. can't think of other ones that fit that mold. No, and and he goes on to explain that the key thing that happens in all of these cases. The people who live in the dwelling that's infested become intensely frightened. And he speculates that maybe the poltergeist actually feeds on fear or stress. Right. And the worse the fear or stress becomes, the more active the poltergeist becomes, like it's had a big meal. And once the people become less scared of it, so maybe it's because they are being, um, you know, comforted by investigators. Maybe it's because they, they move out and the activity, even though it might follow them, becomes less. It starts to die down. He talks about this lifespan of a poltergeist. They don't, they don't stay forever. 
they go. And it isn't just the typical, you know, you get a spiritualist medium in who smudges the place. That doesn't necessarily get rid of them. Um, There's a couple of cases where he talks about um, in the South Shields case, advising the family to turn all of their electrical objects off from standby at night so there's no electricity at night, that causes it to die down. But there's also this explanation of once you get given a cure, it could be a placebo, the family become less worried about it and therefore there's less food for the poltergeist and then it goes. But then the contagion aspect comes in where it always needs to feed. So is it trying its tricks out on other people to see how scared they become and see how satiated it can become with its appetite? That is a really, really interesting idea. It is. And and it it does suit that narrative that the author's putting out of him coming home and experiencing the same things that he's been experiencing elsewhere in his own home because that ups the fear level, doesn't it? Even that fear that something's come home with you, right? You yes. know what I mean? That that adds a new level of fear that if it is feeding off something, yeah, I'll, you'd be terrified, wouldn't you? You do a ghost hunt, you see some weird phenomena, even even something as ridiculous as a pie disappearing, and then it happens to you. That yeah. adds an extra level of anxiety to you, I would think. Yeah, and and depending on the way that this entity, if it is an entity, you know, it might just be, you know, it might not have a consciousness. It might be doing these things out of learned behaviour because if it learns that removing a pie from a refrigerator makes somebody scared it'll do it again Mm. and you like a like a dog it doesn't understand why it sits for a treat the poltergeist might not understand that removing a pie is it's effective because it's moved something out the fridge it might just be as effective to remove a bottle of milk but it doesn't do it because it knows that removing the pie that time it did it becomes effective so it's learning something that isn't necessarily attached to you know the action it just understands that doing this thing causes that and therefore it can feast you know that's that's one way of looking at it but what the the single entity theory that would suggest that this entity can be uh, in more than one place at the same time, I would think. Yes. Then, yeah, okay. Yes, yes, yes. That's why he describes it as the arch poltergeist with, you know, this sort of imaginary tentacles. But because we don't understand the form of this thing, it might be very possible for it to be in many different places at the same time. And it can cause all kinds of different phenomena to occur and to appear to those people, all seemingly to cause fear. So one of the things that he points out is that uh, throughout the book, there are some behaviours which you can attribute to. For example, UFO-like encounters. So there are cases where the people who are being plagued by a poltergeist see daytime UFOs. They might even experience, like we said, scratches and intense nightmares, really similar to the alien abduction phenomena. There is succubus 
like behavior, people who feel like there is a sexual entity on them. In fact, there's a couple of um, descriptions in the book of people who felt like, you know, there's there's one woman who thought that her husband was saucily caressing her bum and it wasn't he was nowhere to be seen it was the poltergeist doing that and she felt like it followed her to bed and all of these things come together to kind of make you think well maybe maybe it isn't just a spirit that likes chucking plates around there might be more to it than that it might completely be a coincidence that that person saw a ufo but it's it's reported alongside poltergeist cases i hadn't realized that what if the poltergeist can change perception to make people see that just to create something it can feed off because if you if if your house is infested with a poltergeist and then you see a ufo out the window you're going to be even more scared so well not well not only are you going to be more scared you are also cutting yourself off more from people believing you or wanting to help you because yeah you yeah go, yeah because you they go oh god they're seeing ufos now <laughs> do you know what i mean they're talking about all this stuff and they no, they're, they're just crazy you, that it cuts them off doesn't it it's almost like a kind of poltergeist's version of coercive control <laughs> they kind of make you feel you're mad and everybody else makes make other people think you're mad as well that's really i i think that's a really interesting idea because that would play into the idea of as soon as you've got somebody that starts investigating it first of all it gets mad and then it goes because there is somebody there that says don't worry it can't really hurt you we can find a way through this thing and if that person believes them and if they come with enough credibility like these researchers do then it goes because, well, there's Just no point in me continuing my work here. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I was going to ask one question. In the cases that are covered, the like the South Shields and the Lock Street or Lock House or whatever it's called, in the ones that they've done, do they ever see, are there any apparitions? Do they see these poltergeists? Or in their opinion, is it an unseen spirit? Yeah, no, there are, there are. Um, so it ranges from... Uh, like shadow people seen out of the corner of the eye right. to there's one um, very disturbing instance. Well, in fact, I'm, I'm going to tell you two actually, but there's one where the homeowner wakes up to see uh, like a, um, a black figure with a bright yellow face with hollow eyes staring at them. And this is kind of like the final, um, like straw for them before they kind of bring in investigators the other the other key thing about that case is that um they are plagued by the water in the uh kitchen being left on the entire time Mm. and when the investigators turn up they discover that a alcoholic died in that house and funnily enough the two things were because he was uh, he was a final stage alcoholic. He was, as he was approaching death, he decided um, be, to, to assuage his thirst because alcoholics do become very thirsty. He would leave the water in the kitchen on the entire time. And because his internal organs were packing up, he was heavily jaundiced. So he was yellow in the face. And there is a, a little bit of a debate about, is this the spirit of the dead alcoholic 
or is it the poltergeist making use of the story that it already has there mm. to further intimidate the witnesses mm. because the rest of the behavior is relatively similar well it is similar to all of the other poltergeist cases and you have to ask yourself why would a dead alcoholic go and for example start stacking chairs it doesn't make a lot of sense no. but if you are that entity that is trying to elicit fear and you have an understanding about what happened in that house well sure let's just tell that story as well because that'll terrify them more but yeah there, there does seem to be this manifestation of um human-like characters let, let me tell you this one because i thought this was really okay. good this is this is not one that they covered it comes from um Buckil, uh buckle Buckelvy in um scotland in 1994 and it was researched by malcolm robinson uh and two others billy devlin and helen walters don't think that really matters but just give them um the credit on there give them the they, props yeah exactly um they uh described that the actual haunting uh or infestation occurred for almost nine weeks in an old cottage uh, in this village in Stirlingshire in Scotland between September and uh, November in 1994. And one of the things they do point out is the cottage had been quite extensively renovated. They don't know if that's relevant, but that does appear to be something that does cause uh, these infestations. And the people that live there were a Mr. and Mrs. Matchett, and they've got uh, three children living at home. And the whole thing starts when their 15-year-old daughter wakes up one night to find a young boy standing at the foot of her bed. And she is quite obviously terrified, and she refuses to sleep in that bedroom again. And Mr. Matchett, believing that the sighting uh, is nothing more than a convincing dream, decides to sleep in his daughter's room to make a point. And... Uh, he's woken at 5.15am with a feeling that something was disturbing and moving the bed. And he sees the boy sitting on the bed, looking at him and smiling. And he's, like, petrified, as you can imagine. And he decides he's just going to get out of there. So he's beginning to get out of bed, and it's almost like the entity understands what he's going to do because it disappears from the end of the bed and immediately reappears in the doorway of the room, almost as if to, you know, stop him going through it and reading his thoughts. And he has to run through the entity to get out of the bedroom. And this is when, you know, they bring in the investigators. And funnily enough, the investigator relates this. This is a direct quote. A most peculiar thing happened after I returned from investigating the house at Bukulvi. Like any investigation, upon completion, one finds oneself on a natural high. It's a feeling like no other. Your perception and concentration have been with you all night. Staying at an alleged ha haunted house, your senses are on really high alert. This was certainly the case with me on that visit to the house. After the investigations of that night were complete, I was dropped off at my house, which is another place in central Scotland. In the early hours of the morning, and my wife and children had already gone to bed, I was there sitting in the living room in my favourite chair reading a newspaper. 
The house was deathly quiet as I turned each page, not really paying attention to the stories as my tired eyes were looking at them. Suddenly, before between four and six, very loud rappings reverberated around the room, which seemed to come directly from behind my head. They were in quick succession and scared the living daylights out of me. And he goes on to say that that was the first time that something had inverted commas followed him home and it seemed to him like it was trying to make itself aware and obviously it's not a full body manifestation as had happened at this case but it seems like in this case the the poltergeist is conjuring up an image of a child and whether that is to you know it is it is the spirit of a child or whether it is something pretending to be a child we we don't know but it is also interesting that the thing that we have spoken about of where ouija boards bring through entities that we suspect are not the entities that they are the author researcher describes being involved in a ouija session although he wasn't actually touching the glass he was just an observer but an entity came through giving a lot of information that only he and his supposedly dead ancestor that it was supposed to be would know but he says i don't believe that was my grandfather mm. because it didn't seem right it was off although it had this very private knowledge and this seems to be the case here right why would a small child entity try to trap a man in his bedroom and then supposedly if we believe the the uh the reports follow somebody back and start rapping on the wall yeah. it doesn't make sense it all speaks to this trickster this other entity this something else this perhaps arch poltergeist which also made me because we talked earlier about yeah, it would really freak you out as the investigator and that could be a really interesting way for the poltergeist to feed off the fear and energy if you buy into that concept. But I also started thinking about two other possibilities. It could be a warning to the investigators. Back off. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I can do yeah. this. Oh, yeah. Do you want to get involved? Just back off. Or even revenge. If they have been at a place and it's been, let's say, it's a good source for them of whatever they need and you've got investigators coming in, ruining that for them, do they then almost seek some kind of revenge on those investigators? Or the, yeah. the arch entity, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That does make sense. Um, and you're sort of left with this feeling of i completely understand the the hypothesis being made but i think with all of these things we struggle to understand what the concept of that entity could be and why why fear would be something that would be useful to it and you know, I, th I suppose more existentially, how it evolved, where it came from, what its lifestyle is, what's it doing? I mean, does it have a hobby? Does it go on holiday? And I, that, those sound trite things, but... Well, it likes what, Lego. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Or is it like a virus, which doesn't, you know, 
a virus is almost alive but not quite it's not it's a biological entity but you know you would argue that it doesn't have any consciousness you know we could argue that until the cows come home but it does its thing it knows how to evolve it knows you know covid knows how to evade um the defenses we put up around it and change and adapt and all it wants to do is multiply to be as as big as it can be is that what a poltergeist is doing Mm. is it is it the same as a virus but it's just a different sort of virus it doesn't have any particular agenda apart from to survive yeah it's 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 acting off a kind of almost primeval instinct yes equivalent of it yeah that's really fascinating because I'm, um, I'm kind of struggling with the concept of this one overarching entity, even though it does make sense to me in terms of, yes, it's got personality traits and it would explain a lot of the same behaviour and attitude, let's say. But, yeah, maybe it's just my, <laughs> to quote Winnie the Pooh, bear of little brain, can't quite get my head around the fact that you know, this one poltergeist entity, even with its multiple tentacles reaching out, can be everywhere at once. Is that kind of... that? Maybe that's just a concept that's too big for my brain to engage with. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily... Um, I mean, the author, to be, to be really fair to them, they're just saying that that is... A possibility. An, it's just an idea. It's possible that we could build on that theory and say that you know, they're all similar to viruses. You know, one flu virus mm. of one strain looks very similar yeah. to, well, it looks identical to another flu virus of the same strain. It could it could be that. But they make a really interesting comparison and they sort of apologise for um, the biblical reference, but there is a, a reference in the Bible about a demon who describes um themselves as as a we we are legion Mm. and you know that idea has been taken into hollywood and i guess we're all familiar with it but that um that biblical idea suggests that um demons are are one entity that it's kind of like the borg we we are one yeah they've got not necessarily a the traditional way of looking at a single entity it's more like a hive mind kind of vibe hive mind yeah he so hive mind comes into this yes absolutely and it's possible you know if you if you're a hive mind that you could be um you you could be a a part of a hive mind but also be a separate entity Mm. that comes out and does its thing and um, I guess you could draw comparisons to we don't fully understand, for example, how flocking birds mm. change. I said flocking um, <laughs> when when starlings are dipping and diving and making those incredible formations. Who is leading that? It isn't just one bird. There is there's an understanding amongst them about that changing of direction that we still don't have a handle on really and it's also it's also reminding me of there was something recently and i'm not going to do it justice so uh if you're listening it may be worth doing a google on it but wasn't there something quite recently about trees and their root systems 
they're individuals, but they do communicate yes. in a kind of hive-like way. It was reminding that's me right. of that. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's plants in general. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you sort of, it, it in a way, it presents more thinking points mm. than anything else, but I had never considered it in that way before. I was, I'd always, I suppose before I read the book, my mental model was... Um, a poltergeist was a, uh, a a dead a dead person which was still hanging around and was angry, mm. you know, yeah. and they were expressing their anger in the only way they know how, you know, throwing plates and and doing all of that other behaviour. But it's when you apply that that meticulous nature that an investigator does and pulls out the individual weirdness because that individual weirdness like to be the, he doesn't say this but it occurred to me like why doesn't the poltergeist unhook curtains why doesn't the poltergeist turn books back to front on uh on bookcases there's a whole load of things that it could do why doesn't it bake a cake you know if it can do all these things why doesn't it do that well the reason is that it hasn't learned that those elicit a particular response from humans is 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 the argument I'm getting from this book. Yeah, or or it's just too full after that pie. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, I I love that concept. I think the bit I love about this idea, a, it's a fresh approach I'd never heard of before. You know, this idea of the contagion elements, amazing this idea of either one entity or a hive mind fascinating and that in and again it may be just post-rationalizing to make sense of something but it does it would explain a lot about the behavior of poltergeists and as i said earlier the fact that you do think of them as a single personality even if you i'd never thought of them as a single entity before a hive mind they always have this certain type of personality. So actually, even metaphorically thinking of them in that single entity or hive mind way is a really interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And it, it's, yeah, it's some fresh thinking into it, but it doesn't bring us any closer to understanding whether it's a, it's a trickster, how these phenomena mm. could possibly be connected but it does it it does give us a hypothesis where we can um if it's if it holds out to be true empirically that if you stop being afraid of a poltergeist its work there is done and it needs to move on mm. then it gives us almost a method of defense and takes us slightly closer to understanding the motivations behind it mm. but it doesn't give as much of an insight into how and why that thing is is there and what its role in the universe is i guess yeah it does give you a multi-season tv concept though <laughs> with one character <laughs> oh well that's true that's true <laughs> And and I suppose the other thing um, that we we love talking about is jots. There's a whole load of jot um, behaviour in yeah. there, things that appear and disappear. There's one brilliant case that they talk about, which again they didn't investigate, where 
the um, the poltergeist almost becomes like a pet they describe, and they invent these games where um, they throw stones into the corner and the poltergeist throws them back and they give it a name they call it tom and my favorite thing about it is that um in the early days of the infestation somebody says we need to take notes on what's happening and out of thin air a notepad and pen materialize in (laughs) midair and drop on the floor i love that idea that is that is amazing it's either like completely taking the piss, which I think it is, yeah. or it's just having a whale of a time. It's like fine, do you know, do that then. Yeah, it's reminding me of the um some some of the scenes, the early scenes in the original Poltergeist movie. You know where the the furniture is moving around, and there's that wonderful scene where the uh, the wife is putting. Um, Carol Ann on the kitchen floor and she's sliding along because the poltergeist is pushing her along and they keep doing it multiple times. What you were talking about there really reminded me of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I guess they've done their, the done research. their research. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But look, that's, um, that's Darren's work. Um, it's called Poltergeist Parallels and Contagion. You can get it in paperback from Amazon in the UK. I'd imagine you can get it in the States as well. It's worth a read if you want to have a different approach to poltergeists. And particularly if you've experienced poltergeist phenomena, but you aren't necessarily plagued by it, I think it gives a new dimension as to what it is that might be causing it. For example, you know, there's another case in the book where it's postulated that um, one of the one of the, the family members who is experiencing this poltergeist behaviour. He collects um, memorabilia from serial killers and the investigators suggest that they go and move that paraphernalia to another house to see if the, um, the infestation dies down. And that's kind of interesting, you know, it kind of it does and it doesn't. But it's like, does the phenomena attach itself to these things that are evil because it thinks that it can, um, you know, farm the feelings that come from this, you know, from things that used to belong to serial killers and and whatnot? Mm. Or does it go against the theory and and it's, um, you know, some kind of evil entity that's attached to that that derives from the spirits of these dead serial killers there's no definitive answer but it's an interesting case and it does make you just sort of think about how these things get into your house what they're caused by and what they want and i yeah it's it's definitely uh worth a read but i will say if you're doing a podcast and you've got a week to research it you'll be having a lot <laughs> of early mornings trying to make sense of everything that's in there that's uh that's almost a mischievous spirit on its own, isn't it? <laughs> Damn right it is. <laughs> well, that's fascinating. Like you said, really fascinating. I love, I love the con- concepts where they come at it from a different angle because it's really interesting and, yeah, some amazing stories. So, um, well, let us know uh, what you think about these kind of theories on poltergeist especially this idea of either it being a single entity or a hive mind and the idea that it can spread by contagion let's let's see what everyone's thoughts are out there and uh, as we always do thank you uh 
all those people who have been reviewing and giving us stars, following us on Facebook at TQM Podcast and telling your friends because I've, I've seen a few little reviews saying, oh, I was told about the podcast by a friend. So if you're doing that, please keep doing it and thank you for doing that. It really, it really does make getting up on the truck at 5.30 every day to read a book, to tell you about it, absolutely worth it. I love doing it, um, but I also love... Um, sleep. Sleep, but I also love you all uh, telling me about it, so it, it does make sense. And if any of you have read this book and have a thought on it, I'd love to see it in the comments on social media, because yeah. I... I just want to know what other people think. It's one of those where uh, you want to really read it and then get down the pub and kind of debate the, the facts in and out. And because I've never experienced poltergeist phenomena, I'd love to hear from somebody that has and see what they think about the book. So that would be brilliant if you've, uh, if you've ever done that. Let me know. And, and now I've got this book, if anyone is experiencing poltergeist phenomena that wants to talk about it, I'll send you the book and you can have a read on it. If uh, times are tight and uh, if you want me to post it to you, uh, let me know. I'll happily do that. I've only got the one copy, so first come, first serve, but I'll be happy to do that. Well, that's good. All right. Well, look, we will be back next week with more interesting theory and tales of the paranormal. We'll see you next week on The Quantum Mechanics. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Are you the quantum mechanics?